0: Um, Father, um, as always, we just want to take a moment um, even just to remind ourselves uh, that you are here with us, um, and we want to come again, as we always do, um, to ask that your Holy Spirit would come uh, and teach us through your word. Uh, we remember the words of Jesus when he said, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And I Thank you that we can trust you. Uh, to do that uh, and Father I want to pray very specially this morning uh, that you would help us that your spirit would come and help us um, Father where there are things in your word uh, that we find difficult to understand um, I pray that your spirit would come and bring light and bring understanding um, where there are things in your word that are difficult to obey and to put into practice we pray that your spirit would come and empower us for obedience for obedience and Father, where there are things that are difficult because we maybe disagree with each other about them, I pray that your Spirit would come and give us grace for each other. Um, come, Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so, I uh, probably I was praying um, quite deliberately. Uh, uh, in, a, in a particular way as we, we come to this passage this morning, I'm kind of very mindful. Um, some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning can be a little bit controversial. Uh, some of you will say, I don't find that controversial at all. Um, some, of you, some of you may find it so. Uh, we're going to be talking about men and women. We're going to be talking about marriage. Um, and I want to say right at the beginning, this may seem kind of strange, but I want to say right at the beginning, some of you are going to disagree with some of what I say this morning. And I want to say right at the beginning, that's okay, right? There is liberty for you to do that. Um, I want to encourage you to look at it with me, with an open Bible and with an open mind. Um, I'm gonna, I want to encourage you, if you're bothered or troubled by anything that I say, uh, to come and talk to me. I would love to talk, talk with you uh, about it. Um, I'll maybe say right at the beginning, because it maybe helps. I'm, I'm going to be taking a view of this passage that is not the traditional view. Um, and So I'm going to be very carefully setting out why I read this passage uh, the way I do, but you are at liberty to disagree with me. I'm very mindful there are people, there are some teachers and scholars who I really respect who hold a different view to the one that I hold on this, as well as others who hold the, the same view as me. And So I want to be really mindful of that and respectful uh, in the way that I speak. And at the same time, I want to speak with conviction in terms of what uh, the conviction the Lord has put on my heart. So now I've got your attention, right? You all, you all ready for this? Um, and at the same time, having said all that, I also want to say this, that there is, there is a heart to this passage. We, we get a bit distracted by the controversial stuff, but there's a heart to this passage um, which shouldn't be controversial and which I think we can all agree on. I'm hopeful we can all agree on and which I find really challenging and inspiring um, because the gospel is at the heart of this passage. And every time the gospel is there, it should cut to the core, right? And so I hope you'll go away and mull over the other stuff, but I hope we'll really, we'll see Jesus more clearly uh, from having read this passage and hear the gospel more clearly, okay? So is that a good hope as we go into this, okay? So you feel the freedom. You're allowed to go home and say, I totally disagree with John Mark. That's fine. Um, uh, So because this takes a little bit of thought uh, we're going to do a little bit of work before we read the passage, because there's a couple of things to say that might kind of help to set the scene. Um, and so we're going to begin, uh, this, this may seem a bit strange, but by looking at the structure of the bit around this passage, um, and I find this kind of interesting, this may be a wee bit Bible nerdy, um, but often in the Greek language there are long sentences, like we saw in Ephesians 1, where you often get a, a major clause and then lots of little subclauses, kind of hanging off it. And you can't always see this in the English. So I just want to show you a little map of this section. Because uh, I find this really helps. Um, so we're talking about how to walk. How to walk day by day. Uh, the, the calling that we've received from God. So um, we actually have to go back to... Remember this verse from last week? Be filled with the Spirit. So that's kind of our banner headline. We're thinking about life in the Spirit how to live as people who are filled with the Spirit of God. And then you get um, lots of clauses hanging off that. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, um, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father in everything. Um, and then this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? So that, is, that belongs to the big theme of being filled with the spirit, but it's kind of a, our major subclause that we're of the section that we're about to read today. So all of us are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then hanging off that, you get this whole section that we're about to read today. Uh, there are instructions for wives and for husbands and for children and for fathers and for slaves and for masters, and so I especially want to highlight this. Um that's, that's the headline of this whole section. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the individual relationships, um, all of us are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, all of us are to submit to each person in the family of God. That's, that's a basic characteristic of life in the household of God. Uh, mutual submission under the lordship of Jesus. Okay. So that's kind of our big headline. And I think when we remember that, it helps to illuminate some of the detail whenever we get into it. Um, so maybe keep that in mind. We'll come back to that phrase uh, later on as we go through. Um, so a little bit more groundwork. So keep that map in mind. Um, a little bit more groundwork. Um, two simple observations. Um, just two two very quick things I want to observe. One is this. Um, if you go into the street today in Korean or Belfast or Dublin or wherever, um, and you ask people, what does the Bible say about women and slaves? Right? A lot of people you interview in the street are going to say the Bible is really bad news for both. Right? A, a lot of people in our culture today will think the Bible is anti-women and pro-slavery. Right? And you've probably come across that view in people you've, you've talked to. Uh, that you share life with. So that's one observation. That that view is kind of bubbling around in our culture out there. The second observation is this, is that in the world of the first few centuries after Jesus, as the church grew and spread in dramatic ways, women and slaves were drawn to the church in huge numbers. They, 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 the, the biblical message was particularly attractive to those two groups of people. They experienced it, they heard it as profoundly good news. Right? So I'm, just, I'm setting those two things side by side because there's a bit of dissonance between them. The way people think in our culture and the way the message was received back then. And I want to maybe flag, flag up right at the beginning, maybe there's something wrong with the way we're reading these passages today. Uh, maybe we need to be careful Um, as I often say to mind the gap between our culture and the culture of the first century where these texts were written we need to be a little bit careful and think about our culture and think about theirs and make sure we're hearing it right because they heard it as profoundly good news uh, for those those groups of people okay so that's a second little bit of um, preparation last bit of preparation before we finally read the passage um is I want to think about the gap, and I want to think about the cultural context. And are you ready for some big words? Um, I want to I want to talk about the extended patriarchal household, right? So to try to help us think about the culture of the first century when the Bible was written, um, the the basic building block of life in the ancient world was what what sociologists call the extended patriarchal household. Now, what what do they mean by that? Um, simply this, and if I If I was more artistic, I would have made made this into a diagram, but I'm just going to put it in words. Um, That the the, the shape of the household was this, that at the top was the patriarch, the husband, the father, the master. In many cases, uh, although the passage we're going to read talks about those as if they're different people, very often that's one person who is the husband and the father and the master. So they're at the top of the structure, and underneath their authority would have been his wife or wives, sometimes concubines as well, um, under his authority. Um, his children and very often his grown-up children's families. Right, They often lived under the same roof and still lived under his patriarchal authority. And his slaves and their families, because often the slaves were married and had children of their own. And all of those people... You can try to imagine this. All of those people often lived under one roof, but they all also lived under the, the absolute authority of the patriarch, the godfather, the husband, father, master at the top. Okay. Um, actually, under Roman law, um, whenever the Romans were counting heads in the empire, they only actually counted the, the guy at the top. There's a sense in which legally he was the only one who existed. Uh, because the others within that household, essentially, under law, were his property. They belonged to him. They were his possessions, along with his cattle and his camels and whatever else. He owned them. And with, with a few limitations, he was at liberty to do with them whatever he wished. Right. So, in case you don't believe me, uh, let me read you one little snippet from an ancient writer. Uh, and this, this picks up the the relationship between father and grown-up children, right? So here, imagine this. The lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son. Whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains, to keep him at work in the fields, to put him to death. And this, even though the son were engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates, though he were celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. Right? Do, do you get what he's saying? So even if the grown-up son is actually quite an important person in some parts of society, within the home, his father has liberty to throw him in jail if he wants to, to put him to death if he wants to. That's the kind of absolute power that we're talking about within the ancient household. So... That was the structure of every household pretty much within the ancient world. Um, I kind of want to underline right at the beginning, that wasn't an idea that came from the Bible or Christianity or Judaism. That was the way things were done in the pagan world. That was everywhere. Um, And last little detail is that structure was also supported by the teaching of the philosophers. Um, So... uh, when you think of philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, who were so influential uh, in, in, in that world, um, they, they justified and supported this whole structure. So one little example. I don't want to read you lots of uh, history here. This is our last little bit of detail. Aristotle said this, the free rule the slave, the male the female, the man the child in different ways. For the slave has not got the deliberative part at all. In other words, the slave doesn't have the ability to make thoughtful decisions about things. The female has it, but without full authority, while the child has it, but in an undeveloped form. Um, Or to put it more bluntly, Aristotle also said this, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. Therefore, the one rules and the other is ruled. Okay, so do you get... So, in other words, Aristotle is saying not only is this the way society is structured, but it's the way it should be structured because there is an intrinsic superiority to the male, the master, the father, and an intrinsic inferiority to the other, right? So we got that. That's, that's the context. Uh, this is the way society is structured, and the philosophers are saying this is the way it always should be because of the, 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 way, the way people are. Okay. Is everybody happy? Is that enough history for now? Okay, so that, that's the context. Um, now we're ready, uh, I think, to have a go at hearing uh, what Paul says. Um, and where it's possible, try and put yourself in that first century context maybe of living in this kind of household and see how it sounds as you hear Paul speak. Uh, so this is Ephesians chapter five. We're going to read uh, from verse 21. Verse 21. So again, reminding ourselves of the banner headline over the whole section. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, A profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers... Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. That's where we're going to end. Whew. Right? where. Where, where do we begin? Um, well, let's begin here. Um, Paul says in verse 23, uh, the husband is the head. Uh, and just, just immediately right at the beginning, um, I want to suggest this. Whenever you and I hear in our culture, the husband is the head, we, we hear that as if Paul is making a radical and controversial assertion. So from our context, we hear that and say, whoa, what's that you're saying, Paul? That's a, that's a, a big statement. That's a big assertion. That's a big claim. Um, I want to suggest that in, if you were there in the first century, you would have heard that as a simple observation of fact. Um, you could look around you and see that that was true. The household was arranged in a shape with the man as the head. Um, to say the husband is the head in that culture was like saying the roof is on top of the house, right? You could look out the window and see that this was true. Um, Paul is assuming a context of extended patriarchal household. Whether or not Paul thinks things should always be like that is another question, and we're going to explore that a little bit as we go. But in the first instance, um, in Paul's culture, that's a simple observation of fact. Um, If you'd been living in the first century... Um, I want to suggest there are two other things that would immediately have caught your attention. And this may be a good place to to start. Uh, The first one is this, is that Paul speaks directly to the wives and the children and the slaves. Now, you and I, that doesn't seem surprising to us. Uh, But remember what I said about them, that under Roman law, they are the property of the man. And so if you were speaking to to that household in the ancient world, who do you speak to? You speak to the head, right? If, I, if I'm speaking to you, I don't speak to your chest or your knees. I, I speak to the head. Um, if you're addressing a household, you don't address the furniture or the lawnmower or the vacuum cleaner. You address the uh, the people. Um, in the ancient world, when people addressed the household, they addressed the patriarch. Um, Paul very deliberately speaks directly to the wives and the children and the slaves. He, he gives them dignity. They are responsible agents with a part to play. And if you were in the ancient world, that bit would have immediately have grabbed your attention. Paul, Paul is speaking to us. Um, he's given us a part to play and a, and a role uh, to play. Um, second thing is this. Um, I don't know if you noticed this as we went through. Paul does not say what Aristotle says, that they are inferior. Whatever Paul is doing in this passage, he never backs it up by saying that the master is inferior is superior intrinsically to the slave or the man is superior intrinsically uh, to the, to his wife. Uh, there's no suggestion that they are ke- less capable in any way, intellectually or spiritually or emotionally or whatever. Okay, So again, if you're in that ancient world where Aristotle and his ideas rule because he is the king of the philosophers, Um, that's immediately going to grab your attention, um, what Paul doesn't say uh, in this passage. Okay. Having said all that, um, I want to suggest probably we still find it difficult when we find what Paul says to those three groups of people. He says, Wives submit in everything. Children obey. Slaves obey. Right? Now, Sit for a wee second and think, what, what is your reaction to those three? Because um, it's going to be a little bit different for different people. Um, I, w- I want to suggest, probably, my guess, we all struggle with the third one. Slaves obey your master, right? We struggle with it because we think of all the terrible abuses that have happened under slavery uh, through the centuries, and we, we find ourselves wondering, is Paul giving approval to that system why does, not, why does Paul not speak out against the evil of slavery, of the idea of one person owning another person as property? Um, why, why does he not speak out against that? And so I, I want to suggest all of us probably are a bit troubled by the third one. Um, some of us are going to have questions about the first one. Wives, submit to your, to your husbands. Um, some of us are going to have questions like, surely that leaves women open to being treated like slaves? Um, which has happened at many times and in many cultures uh, and even today. Um, And some of us are wondering, why is that necessary or right? If women are not inferior as as Aristotle taught, then why would that be just or or right? Um, I want to suggest most of us probably think we have no problem with number two, right? Especially because most of us in this room are adults. um, We're thinking, yes, (laughs) children obey your parents. Except let me suggest that In the first century, when Paul wrote this, almost certainly his hearers would have understood that to mean not only children who are under 18, but adult children well into life. So I'm looking at you all and thinking, how do you feel if Paul says to you, obey your parents, right, and submit to the authority of your father? Um, most, Most of us, we do a little bit of cultural translation with that one. And assume that he means until you're 18. Um, Almost certainly that's not what Paul meant or how he would have been understood in his context. He was speaking also to the adult children. So now I've given you a problem with all three, right? Um, You thought you had a problem with one, maybe two. Uh, Now you have a problem with all three. Um, Here's where I think a lot of our choices about how we read this passage kind of boil down. We need to make a choice. Is this a timeless ideal blueprint for family life, right? Or is this uh, pastoral practical wisdom for living faithfully in less than ideal circumstances? Uh, And that's the big question you're going to need to kind of go away and think about uh, after this morning. Um, I think a lot of our problems with this passage arise because we assume it's the first that this is God's best plan for how families should work at all times and in all places. Um, and I think that leads us, you can, you can see how that leads us to problems, especially with the slavery part, right? Um, is that God's blueprint for working relationships for all time? That it, it should be this way always? Um, is that the best model we can imagine? Um, I don't think so. I think this is Paul giving practical pastoral wisdom to help them live the gospel and follow Jesus faithfully in the less than ideal cultural conditions in which they found themselves. And as soon as you start thinking about it in those terms, it starts to make sense. Um, Why does Paul not call for an end to slavery? Um, Because at that time and in that place, that wasn't something that was even vaguely imaginable or possible. Um, Tom, Tom Wright, who writes a lot about the New Testament, um, has said that someone calling for an end to slavery in the first century would be like someone today calling for an end to electricity, right? And you might have some good reasons why you think that would be good, but it, it's not imaginable because it's so woven into the fabric of the way our whole culture and society and lifestyle is powered that you can't, you can't imagine it. Um, and imagining an end to slavery in the first century would have been something like that. Why does Paul not call the slaves to rise up and resist. Um, I think, again, you can hear Paul's practical pastoral wisdom because that w- would only have made their lives much harder because their master had total authority over their lives. And if they started to rise up and resist, he, he could have made life exceedingly uh, abusive and uh, and hard for them. And also that would have brought the gospel and the church in the disrepute. Can you imagine the rumour spreading through the Roman Empire that Christianity is calling the slaves and the women to rise up and overthrow uh, every part of the way society had been structured? Um, And so you start to understand, when you see it as practical pastoral wisdom, you understand Paul's heart. Um, I also think at the same time, Paul is planting seeds, which will eventually bring the whole institution of slavery under question. Right. but he's planting them very subtly um, and they will bear fruit uh, in time and we'll come to that in, in a little while. Um, so that, that's maybe the big question you need to think about and I, you can already see what way I'm leaning uh, on this. Is this a timeless ideal blueprint for family life for all time or is it pastoral practical wisdom for living under less than ideal circumstances? Um, I, w- I want to bring us to this, which is um, the radical heart of this passage um, I'll, come, actually I'll come to that in a wee second um, whenever you and I read this passage today the bit that jumps off the page is the, the bit about wives and children and slaves obeying and submitting because that's the bit that culturally is strange for us um, what's the bit that people back then would have noticed? Right? What's the bit where they would have fallen off their chair and said hang on a minute Paul uh, what, are you, what are you saying? it's actually the teaching to the husbands and the fathers and the masters. That's the bit where they would have been shocked. That was the radical part. Because in all three cases, Paul makes it clear they, your wife, your children, your slaves, they are not your property to use as you wish. And Paul calls them to a very high bar in terms of their (laughs) behaviour. So, what does he say to fathers? We're not really going to dwell on this one. Um, I I love these words, fathers. Do not exasperate your children. It's not a brilliant, challenging word for for all of us. Uh, Do not exasperate your children, but positively bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the way of Jesus. Right. And so, there's this really high bar for how fathers are to behave. Don't just treat them. Don't throw them in prison and kill them. And uh, do all those other things that you have the liberty to do under Roman law. Um, but here's how you're to behave towards your children. Masters, um, treat your slaves. Did you, did you get these words whenever we were reading it? Treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way that I just told the slaves to act towards you, which is with respect and fear. It's not an extraordinary thing to say to masters who thought that they had the right to do anything with their property. Treat these human beings who are under your care with respect and fear because there is a master who is master not only of them but also of you. He's putting a bit of fear and trembling into the masters in terms of how they behave uh, towards the slaves. I wonder, do you see the seed of a revolution uh, once you start seeing your slave as a human being, once you start recognizing that God is in authority over you as well as them, and you 've got to act with fear and trembling in the way you treat another human being, um, you start to it 's starting to undermine the whole idea of owning another human being, um, but now we come uh, to the most challenging part of the whole passage, and I hope when we were reading it, you heard that this 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 is the bit where I think every person in the empire fell off their chair when they heard this. And it's a bit Paul dwells on the most. He says, husbands, love your wives. Right? And here's the thing, even if Paul had stopped there, that would have been radical in their culture because that wasn't a requirement. Um, it was kind of, That was something that might be nice if it was there, but it wasn't a requirement in the ancient world. So even to say, husbands, love your wives, is already challenging. But then he blows their their socks off, right? He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, I kind of feel like in this passage, if I can put it this way, Paul kind of walks the men into a little bit of a trap (laughs) Um, because he kind of says, the husband is the head, right? And they're saying, yes, that's right. And he's saying, And you know the way Christ is the head of the church? And they're going, yes, yes, we know that's true. And he's saying, take your lead for how to be a leader within your home from the way that Jesus leads. I don't want you to take your role model from the emperor or from the Roman generals or from the Jewish religious leaders. I want you to take your model from Jesus. How does he lead the church? He gives himself up for her he gives his life away he humbled himself he took on the form of a servant he became obedient to death he was willing to bleed and suffer and die for the one he loved so she could be washed and made radiant Um, so she could be blessed and made whole so she could be lifted up and paul says go and love your wife like that right do you hear it? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Um, I, 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 I want to say something. I want to say something very direct for a moment. Um, because sometimes you need a little bit of fierceness with these things. Uh, I want to say this. I want to say whether you end up agreeing with my overall take on this passage or not, right? So we, even if you, you disagree with my thoughts about headship in the home, um, can I say this? Uh, and this is, this is a word for the man, Right? Um, if, you're, if you're unwilling to take on this challenge, to give yourself up for the sake of your wife and to be willing to bleed and suffer for her good and for her blessing and to be willing to do anything so that she can be lifted up and be radiant and shine, you have no spiritual or moral authority to say, I am the head in this home. And I want to say, don't dare hide behind that because that is only a place to hide your own selfishness. If you're going to stand and say, I am the boss, but you're not, if if this passage doesn't bring you to your knees, saying, I have no idea how to love my wife like that. Would you please fill me with the spirit of Christ so I can love in that way? We dare not, we we, we have selective hearing with the Bible very often, don't we? So some of us think the the first part about headship is really clear, but somehow we don't hear this bit, which to me is as crystal clear as anything I've ever read in scripture. Um, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So whew, um, I, I want to I say this. Um, what happens um, if we keep on applying the gospel? So for me, Paul in this passage is applying the beautiful gospel of Jesus to the very non-ideal circumstances in which these people find themselves. Um, and I guess I want to ask the question, what happens if they keep on applying the gospel? And this is where we may disagree with each other, okay? Uh, but I'll do the bit we agree on first, um, with slavery, because we we, I think we all agree about the slavery bit. With slavery, you begin with what we might call harsh slavery, where the master can be abusive and violent and treat his slaves in all kinds of appalling ways. What happens as you apply the gospel is you move towards um, something that you might call benevolent slavery, where the master is kind and takes care of his slaves, Um, right? And actually, there's been lots of moments in history where there have been masters like that, Um, uh, often Christian masters who treated their slaves well and cared for them and made sure they weren't abused and all the rest. And some people thought that's where we should stop. That was enough. To go from harsh slavery to benevolent slavery. I think most of us in this room would agree we need to not stop there. Most of us would say we need to keep applying the gospel until we see that slavery is not okay for one human being to own another. Um, the, the master and the slave need to come to a point where they recognize each other as brothers and sisters, and the end result is emancipation. The slaves get set free, right? Um, and that's what happened eventually under the leadership of Christians like Wilberforce. Um, but the seeds are there in the New Testament. Uh, Paul said in Galatians, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Uh, somebody has said that verse in Galatians is the most socially radical statement made by any thinker for several centuries, either side. Um, but of course, Paul in that verse also said, in Christ there is neither Male nor female. Um, and so I want to ask what happens when we keep applying the gospel to husbands and wives? Uh, and again, we might start with what we might call harsh patriarchy, um, where husbands were abusive and violent and treated their wives as dirt and as property in all kinds of ways. Um, as you apply the gospel, at the very least, you get to hear. You get patriarchy gets transformed to a kind of benevolent patriarchy. A, what you might call a love patriarchy, agape patriarchy, uh, where the husband is committed to loving his wife as Christ loved the church, right? I I think we can all agree that is a world of difference from where we started. That's a whole lot better, right? Um, But I want to stick my neck out and say, um, if we ask, is that where we stop? Um, My conviction is that that's not where we stop, that if you keep applying the gospel something similar happens as happens with slavery, um, which I'm going to describe this way, uh, that men and women come to recognize each other as equal in God's sight, which I'm going to call uh, Genesis equality. Right? Uh, why am I calling it Genesis equality? Uh, because back in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you get the picture which I think is God's ideal blueprint for the relationship between men and women. And in Genesis 1 and 2, what you find is men and women together created in God's image and together given responsibility to rule, to have authority over creation. And whenever you read Genesis 1 and 2, there is no language of the man dominating or leading or ruling over the woman. That language only comes in when you get to Genesis 3, um, And after sin enters the picture and distorts everything, what does God say to the woman? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, Now, my conviction um, as a New Testament believer is that what God is doing through Jesus is reversing the curse of Genesis 3 and restoring what was good in the beginning. And so I think God's best and God's ideal is that picture in Genesis 1 and 2, which is the man and the woman side by side, um, ruling together over their little corner of God's creation. Um, I'm convinced God's best for marriage is for that Genesis equality to be restored. So the man and woman stand side by side under the rule of God and together uh, rule over their family and uh, their little uh, corner of the world, together exercising leadership um, and what that means, being really practical, um, is that both husbands and wives, I think, in our culture, are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And both husbands and wives are to love one another as Christ loved the church. So that really difficult bit that I read a minute ago, I now want to apply to the wives as well. Um, so you get, you get to do that part for your husbands too. Um, that, that's my conviction. Both lay down their lives for each other. Both seek to see the other lifted up and blessed, both seeking the good of the other more than their own good. And part of what that means in practice is where my wife is stronger than I am, which is in many, many places, I look to her to lead. Um, and she uses her strength to lift me up and bless me and do me good. And in areas of our marriage where I am stronger and more gifted, uh, she, she looks to me to lead and to lift her up and to bless her and to do her good um, So that is my view, which you you may want to think about or you may want to just disagree with or you may want to agree with. Um, But I I want to finish here because I want to kind of bring us back to somewhere where I hope we can all kind of agree. Um, I kind of want to make an observation. Um, my, my, My observation is when Christ rules as king in our homes and both husband and wife are submitted to his authority and committed to loving each other in the way of Jesus, the question of leadership rarely arises. When you're getting busy uh, bowing the knee to Jesus as king and obeying Jesus and submitting to him, the issue of leadership rarely arises. Um, And can I tell you a little secret? Um, I've spent time in the homes of people uh, I respect who believe in male headship and where both husband and wife are deeply committed to the way of Jesus and the way of love, right? Right? And I've spent time in the homes of people uh, I know who believe in shared leadership, like what I've set out this morning. And where both are deeply committed to the way of Jesus and the way of love and the way of the cross, right? Um, And I have gotta be really honest with you. I find it really hard to tell the difference because when Christ rules as king and the way of love and the way of the cross reigns in your home, I don't think these issues are quite as important as we thought they were. They start to disappear a little bit. (laughs) Um, And actually, I want to say it the other way around as well, the the negative way. Um, I'm I'm aware I'm going to be blunt again here. Um, I've spent time in the homes of people who believe in the traditional view and who say, we we believe uh, the man is the leader of the home, but where that is used as an excuse for the selfishness of the man, right? Or (laughs) uh, where the wife says, I believe in the headship of the man, but constantly undermines her husband uh, by a war of passive aggression, by belittling her husband when she speaks to other people, by manipulating her husband in all kinds of ways, right? So the bumper sticker says, we believe in this, but when you go into the home, you can't find the smell of the gospel, right? But in case you thought I was letting the others off the hook, I've also been in homes where people say, oh, we definitely believe the man and the woman are equal and we believe that's what Genesis teaches and we believe in the full equality of the man and the woman. But where the marriage is just constantly a contest between two selfish egos trying to get their own fair share. I want my rights met, I want my needs met. And it's just a constant niggling negotiation between two big selfish, self-centred egos. right? And again, there's nothing of the smell of the beauty of Christ or the beauty of the gospel, right? So I, I'm struggling to find ways to say this, but I wonder, I wonder can you hear what I'm saying, which is that the thing that really matters most, let's keep talking about the other issue, because I think it does matter, but the thing that matters most is that in your home, Christ rules as king. And the way of the cross is forming every part of, of how husband treats wife and wife treats husband and parents treat children and children are learning to treat parents and how all of you are engaging with your neighbours and those around you. And whenever you are doing that, some of these other questions become a little bit less important. And when you're not doing that, it doesn't matter what your bumper sticker says. It doesn't matter if you're right about patriarchy or equality, if there's nothing of the beauty of the gospel in your home. Um, and I'm kind of hoping, while we have the freedom to disagree about the other stuff, that we might all agree about that, uh, that we might all go away and say, how can I work and pray this week that our home would be one where everybody who comes through the door sees the gospel, sees the message of the cross in the way that we lay down our lives for each other, right? I think if we do that, we won't go far wrong, right? Um, so... There was something else I was going to say, but I'm going to throw it out. That's enough. Uh, Let's take a moment um, and pray together uh, as we we finish. Uh, And then we're going to sing a song uh, where we submit ourselves again uh, to the authority of Jesus in our lives. Um, So let's pray together. Um, Father, I want to... I want to ask for your help as we process uh, what we've thought about this morning, um, Father. I want to pray. I I want to pray that I, as a as a teacher, would not get in anybody's way in their walk with you, and that if anything in my words has been unhelpful or troubling or confusing for people, I pray that those words would quickly fall away. Um, Father, I want to pray. Um, each of the homes that are represented in this room and I want to pray whatever we decide about some of the questions we've thought about today I want to pray that the spirit of Christ would fill our homes I want to pray that the love of Jesus would fill our homes I want to pray that you would form in us the mind of Christ so that we look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others so we pour out our lives to see our wives lifted up, to see our husbands lifted up, to see our children blessed, um, to bring good to those you've given us to share life with. Father, bring us to our knees today with the challenge of this, that we are called to love in the way of Jesus and in the way of the cross. And our prayer is that the beauty of that would fill our homes like a beautiful fragrance. Uh, Lord, you know we find it hard. You know our selfishness gets in the way. Would you humble us again? Would you soften our hearts again? Would you fill us with the love of Christ? So that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And so that Christ is expressed in the ways that we love each other day by day. Father, show us what this looks like in practice today, tomorrow, in the week ahead. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.